What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? What's Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. What? A Catholic network with a program for non-Catholics? Hey, why not? We are here to answer the questions that you may have about the Catholic Church. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in uh, Russia, you'll want to dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Uh, uh, Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both of those platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box, and uh, Rich will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio. Again, the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. And if you're watching us on TV today, send us an email, ctc at EWTN.com. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting uh, email we got from Mary. Mary says, a caller recently said that what was stopping him from becoming a Catholic were all the rules. You answered, there really weren't that many rules. This might seem like an incomplete response. The Church, in addition to all the moral precepts, such as the Ten Commandments, no euthanasia, no abortion, etc. Also has many rules on allowable sexual behavior. Any comments on that? Yeah, I really do have a comment. So the, the Catholic position is that morality is really defined by one criterion, and that is the rational good of the human person. Okay. Right? Now, obviously, you have to cash that out in, in concrete ways when it comes to how you live your life. Like, for example, is it, is it uh, contrary to the good of the human person to, to commit murder? Well, yeah, 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 it is. All right, is it is it uh, is it contrary to the good of the dignity of persons for spouses to be unfaithful to one another? Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so they're entailed, but the point is that concrete moral uh, positions that the churches take are not arbitrary. They're not drawn out of some uh, simply out of some rule book. Uh, with no rhyme or reason, they, they, they all reduce to this idea of the dignity of the person and the flourishing of the individual. And that's why St. Paul can say in Romans thirteen eight that if you have loved God and loved neighbor, you fulfilled the whole law, right? But what, what people often want to do with that is they want to turn love into a kind of sentiment so that, well, hey, you know, hey, brother, if I love you, we can just do whatever, you know. And, uh, and I mean, that was, the, that was the, the call of the, you know, the hippie movement in the late 60s. Sure. You know, under, the, under the name of love, they actually glorified hedonism, right? Mm-hmm. What actually wouldn't love at all. Um, but, but you have to cash love out in concrete ways. And there are things that are objectively good for people, and there are things that are objectively bad for people. But again, it's th- this idea that 
Catholicism just consists in a list of arbitrary commandments. That's the idea I'm trying to dispense with. Okay. Appreciate that. Mary, thanks so much for your email. Here's one from Michelle watching us on YouTube. Michelle says, does God curse us like he did in Deuteronomy, or did Christianity stop that? Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So Deuteronomy is a funny book, and and there is a if you're taking it at face value, Deuteronomy says some things that other portions of Scripture seem to conflict with. So there's a pretty straight-up promise in Deuteronomy to the people of Israel, if you do these things, you're going to flourish, and your fields are going to be ripe, and your cattle will be fruitful, and you know your grapevines will bring forth a great sure. wine, all this kind of business. And if you do these other things, all kinds of catastrophes are going to come upon you. Uh, then we have the book of Job. Now, the message of Job seems to be the exact opposite of that mm -hmm. of Deuteronomy. I mean, here's yeah. Job. He's done all of the things that a good person of God is supposed to have done. And uh, and it really goes badly for Job. And it seems like nothing so much as a kind of contradiction of the message of Deuteronomy. Now, what the, what the New Testament does is it says, well, you know, the experience of desolation and alienation and pain and loss, that's real. Psalm 88 makes this very plain, that the people of God can feel that kind of abandonment. Uh, as part of the human experience, and uh, and Christ specifically addresses the question. Uh, you know, you heard about this tragedy that took place. The, the the Tower of Siloam fell on these people. Do you think they were worse sinners than the rest? And he says, no, no, that, that, that kind of stuff just happens, and you can't draw a moral conclusion from it, nor can you draw the conclusion, uh, you know, these people are prospering, therefore they have God's favor. And uh, and the, the assessment of the value of human life and the value of suffering really has to be viewed from the perspective of Christ, and Jesus is the interpretive key to the entire Bible. And of course, for Christ, he said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and that it includes, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will but thine be done. All right. Thanks so much uh, for that. And we have this uh, quick question here from Stephanie. You recently said that Catholics are under no obligation to believe private revelations. Can we safely trust and believe the ones that seem to be sanctioned by the Church? I'm thinking specifically of St. Faustina's Divine Mercy and the First Saturday Reparations to Mary. Okay, thanks. So what the Church says about private revelation in general is that it's private, and it's not public, and it's no part of the public teaching of the Church, it's not part of the deposit of faith, and it's not a matter of divine and supernatural faith. So Catholics are not obligated to give the assent of faith to any private revelation. Most private revelations, or a great deal of them, or at least what purport to be private revelations, are clearly spurious. I mean, you know, how many times in my life have I heard somebody say, well, you know, God told me to say, or the Lord put it on my heart. I was mm. at the, in the airport, oh, a, a month or two ago, and I was standing at the coffee shop waiting for my cup of coffee, and I overheard these two guys with guitars talking about, they were worship leaders, about some some uh, gig they had played, and one says, well, you know, the Lord put this song on my heart. Well, I mean... <laughs> I am not obligated to believe that the that the set list was divinely inspired. <laughs> you know, I clearly am not, right? Yeah. And so a lot of that is just pious talk that doesn't mean anything. But sometimes, sometimes, very rarely, someone will come forth with the purported revelation, uh -huh. and the church it doesn't say it's true. What it says is it's allowable. Okay. That that we don't find anything in this that contradicts Catholic faith or morals. And there may be something edifying about it, and so it's it's permissible for the for the faithful to to follow this particular uh, devotion, that particular revelation. But it's not obligatory, and it would be wrong to impose it 
on the entire church as if it were the faith of the Catholic Church. Stephanie, thanks so much for your email. If you'd like to send us one for a future show, especially those of you watching on TV today, the address ctc at ewtn.com. We've got uh, open open phone lines for you right now at 833-288-EWTN for a call to communion with Dr. David Andrews. Stay with us. It's called Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Phone lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV today, your email address, ctc at ewtn.com. Here's something very timely for you, now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It's a new book, Praying with Jesus and Faustina During Lent, and in times of suffering, compiled by Susan Tassoni. It uh, presents St. Faustina's diary that we were just talking about, in which she recorded the words of Christ and her own thoughts on his sorrowful passion. This book will immerse you in Jesus's horrific sufferings, giving you grace, light, and strength to bear your own sufferings. It's got daily meditations for Lent, special reflections leading you through heartfelt prayers on the way of the cross, Christ's Wounds, and Our Blessed Mother's Sorrow. Included are chapters on unique litanies, the Divine Mercy Devotion, and Confession. This book is a winner and right on the money as far as timing goes. Again, it's called Praying with Jesus and Faustina During Lent and in Times of Suffering, compiled by Susan Tassoni. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. We're going to go to the phones in just a moment. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Meanwhile, Colton is watching us on YouTube today. Colton says, can demons appearing in dreams be real? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. haven't heard this one before. So, obviously, this is not the kind of thing that the Church issues a dogmatic pronouncement about. So we're left to our best prudent judgment. And I'm going to make an intuition just based on what I've read from accounts of exorcists. So this is, like I said, this is not drawn too much from theology, but from the practical wisdom of the Church in confronting the demonic. Uh, Things like nightmares and night terrors— definitely characterize the experience of those who suffer from demonic possession or demonic attacks. Um, that's, that's not the same thing as saying that, you know, a narrative that appears in your mind unconsciously when you're asleep is, in fact, an actual demon, right? That's probably more than we know. Mm. All right. And, and um, uh, so people who are afflicted by demonic influences have tragic and neurotic experiences that could affect their dreams, yes. Like, what, how does the metaphysics of that work out? That's kind of beyond our ability to know. Sure. All right, and uh, thanks so much for your question, Colton, via YouTube. Glad that you're watching us today. Michael in Texas asks, does saying a rosary in the car count, or do I have to be super focused and in a sacred space? Yeah, thanks. So, uh, really appreciate the question. But re- remember how prayer is supposed to work with us, especially these kind of contemplative prayers like the rosary. The purpose of such prayer devotion is to affect our imaginative and emotional life. Mm-hmm. It's, to, it's to bring all of our faculties under the obedience of Christ and to edify us and 
help us to reflect on the mysteries of the life of Christ, the Blessed Virgin Mary, so that we internalize them so they can begin to transform our personality and sanctify us. Now, you know, ask yourself the question. Uh, let's take uh, let's take secular music, for example. You know, when I was a 13-year-old, I, I thought uh, Van Halen was just the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know, and I listened to Van Halen a lot when I was 13 years old. And um, for most of my early adolescence, the lyrics, you know, kind of went in one ear and out the other. Sure. But they did get in there. Mm-hmm. They did get in there, yeah. you know, and it wasn't, I didn't give a lot of conscious thought to them, but they, you know, they gradually began to a- affect maybe my view of the world and mm-hmm. myself and maybe my view of women. And then when I got older and I went back and listened to a lot of those hard rock lyrics that I had been into when I was 14, I thought, holy cow, I was listening to that, you know? Tell me about it. But I was seeding my (laughs) consciousness with, you know, with terminology, Mm -hmm. with images. It wasn't, maybe it didn't have a profound effect, but I think it, I think it affected me some, you know? And, and I think you could draw a similar analogy on the positive side from the rosary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you want to sit in a quiet room in a sacred space in front of the Blessed Sacrament and give all of your attention to the mystery of the rosary, that, that might be very impactful on you psychologically. But that's not to say that the, that the, uh, the casual repetition of the prayers of the rosary said while, draw, while driving the car have no effect. Of course they're going to have an effect. Sure. Of course they are. Whatever you put in your brain is what is going to come out of your heart. And, and so the, that's why Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Praying without ceasing doesn't mean that you have to, you know, engage in, in, in utterly concentrated, silent meditation 24 hours a day. It's sure. constantly trying to seed your thought, your imagination with that, which is edifying. Sometimes that's going to mean really intense periods of focus. Other times it may just be a casual recitation of the rosary. Um, you know, you're in your car. That's, that's a lot better than maybe flipping on the hard rock station. Better believe it. Uh, and thank you so much, uh, Michael, for your question from Texas. I was just thinking as you were talking about uh, a road trip that Adrian and I <clears throat> recently took, and we prayed several rosaries. One of them was uh, just a beautiful one led by a priest with the music of Debussy in the background. I mean, that was really fantastic yeah, as, yeah. as you're traveling the miles, or you may want to watch the uh, rosary from the Holy Land with Father Mitch that he recorded in the Holy Land years ago. Both fantastic. And now when you hear Debussy, what's going to come to your mind? There you go. See? Absolutely. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Jay is listening in Virginia on Sirius XM, channel 130. Hello, Jay. What's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. So, as, as a Protestant minister, I'd like to ask uh, a, a question out of the spirit of Christian unity. For those Protestant clergy who feel called to the Catholic Church, you know, we see this with the Coming Home Network and so forth. We, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Christian unity coming back to the roots of Christianity and, and so forth. But there seems to be so few who actually come over into priestly formation. I've talked with I've talked with Home Network, the Crumbing Home Network. They say they are hardly ever have anyone who can who can come over into priestly formation. And so I want to base my question first on the premise, very important, that we're talking about people who are truly called. Okay, so truly called by God. We move aside all of the deliberations about, okay, you got to be truly called and this and that. I understand that. 
But for those who are truly called, could we say that the bishops are simply not welcoming them over? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question, and I have a lot to say about it. The first thing you have to say is about your model of vocation. Like, what does it mean to be called? And and what you didn't identify in your discussions about vocation or calling is how one identifies a call. Now, what some Protestants think, maybe not all of them, but some of them, identify that call with a profound subjective desire to preach or to lead a church. And I would dispute that that is a reliable method of discerning a vocation. Uh, the, the, the best way of putting this, I, I heard from my own bishop, Robert Baker, before he re- retired from his uh-huh. episcopacy. Uh-huh. And I asked him one time, I said, Bishop Baker, how did you know you were called to be a priest? And he said, well, or when did you know? And he said, I, I knew when my bishop ordained me. <laughs> because, see, the vocation to ministry is objective. Uh-huh. It's something that the community the people of God in the persons of her ordained clergy and bishop uh, call you to, right? And it may be a recognition that there's a kind of charism in the life of this person, that this individual has the the proper disposition, um, you know, the right kind of giftings, the right kind of virtues, and that they would be able to serve the church in this capacity. But at the end of the day, if the bishop doesn't ordain you, you're not called. Yeah. You're not called. Now, you may have gifts, but St. Paul says we all do. The gifts of the Spirit are given for the sake of the common good. Um, but they may not be to ordained ministry. And again, there's a very different understanding of ordained ministry in the Catholic Church from the Protestant Church. Um, uh, we have a couple of priests in my diocese, Diocese of Birmingham, who are former Protestant ministers. Right? One of them, who was a former Baptist minister, I was asking him one time, I said, you know, Father, those Baptists, they just preach us black and blue. You know, they, they out-preach a lot of the Catholic priests. I said, what's going on in the seminaries? And he said, uh, well, you know, that's some of it. The instruction is some of it. But he says, I think it boils down to a different model of vocation. I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, you know, when I was a Baptist, uh, if, uh, if a young man had a talent for public speaking, people would say, uh, well, the Lord is calling you to preach. You know, and, and, and there's a different model of vocation in the Catholic Church. Right, um, and the the nature of the ministry. See, if you're a Baptist, the nature of the ministry is primarily one of proclamation. Um, if you're a Catholic priest, the nature of the ministry is primarily offering the sacraments in a worthy manner, and configuring by your own life the sacrifice of Christ for the sake of His body, the Church. Uh, very different model of pastoral ministry. Not and to say that the homily is unimportant, unimportant, unimportant because yeah. it is important. But but the the vocation to ordained ministry for a Catholic means something much more than a talent for public speaking or mm-hmm. or, 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 or or impassioned oratory, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, uh, with all that having been said, uh, we we do have provision for Protestant clergy to become ordained Catholic clergy. I mean, like I said, I, I know more than one in my own diocese that fit mm-hmm. that description. One was a single man who was a Baptist minister who became an ordained Catholic priest. One of them was a married Episcopal priest who is now a married Catholic priest. Right? Yeah. So we do have that provision. Uh, but we also have provision for people who have giftedness, you know, maybe somebody who's led a, a Protestant church and is a gifted orator, a gifted teacher, we have provision for them to use their giftedness in the Catholic Church, but maybe not as ordained clergy. So I have a really good friend who who uh, left the Catholic Church as a young man, went and got himself ordained in the Presbyterian denomination, 
um, you know, developed a lot of skills, uh, a lot of theological knowledge, got sort of cut to the heart by the ministry of John Paul II, came back into the Catholic faith, and he is now uh, a Catholic, uh, is a theology instructor and, and sort of Catholic identity guru at a, at a diocesan Catholic high school here in Alabama. And has he's used all those all that giftedness to serve the church to teach, mm-hmm. uh, but not an ordained ministry, yeah, right? Yeah. Others that I know of have gone on into the diaconate. So it's just not true that that ordained Protestant clergy don't enter into ministry of some kind or another in the Catholic Church. Uh, but again, you don't have a right to it. That's the thing. You don't have a right to it just because you had a position in the Protestant Church. You still have to have that call from your bishop. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay, is that helpful for you, sir? Well, I, I, I guess I, I wanted to say it that fell into exactly what I was hoping it would not, in that we're talking about a true calling. I understand the difference of, you know, inner call, outer confirmation, Mother Church confirming, but my, my I guess well, that's, my that's a Protestant. that's a Protestant way of construing it, to suggest that the call is essentially interior— and the church's job is merely to recognize what God has established. That's a really Protestant way of thinking about vocation. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that the subjective desire to be in ministry that one might interpret as, hey, God's calling me to do this, it's not just a matter of the church validating it. It is, in fact, the church that calls you. Yeah. That, that inner sense is not the call. It's just a desire, an, an inclination, disposition, right? The church makes the call. Jay, thanks so much for your call, sir. We do appreciate hearing from you in Virginia. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. It's called a communion here on EWTN. As you were laying all that out, David, I was thinking about our friend Jim Pinto. Who, yeah, yeah. Who is you know very familiar to EWTN television and radio, uh, doing the program At Home with Jim and Joy. He used to be himself an Episcopal priest. And he's found an active sphere of ministry as a Catholic. You better believe it. Appreciate that again. Uh, call to communion here on EWTN. Here's an email now from OJ. With so many things going on in the world today, good or bad, I find myself saddened and confused. I understand that God knows the past, present, and future of our lives already. I seem to question why God even created us. I know that he gave us a free will, but he already knows our choices. I am confused. Please set me straight. That's from O.J. Yeah, thanks. So the fact that God knows your choices doesn't mean that he constrains your choices. They're still your choices. And God made the world so that rational beings would freely choose to love him and grow in virtue into his likeness and image with the help of grace. So that's why you're here. That's the meaning and purpose of your life, is to grow in likeness of God and Christ uh, through charity and the virtues with the help of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Catholic Church. So that's that's the purpose of it. Now, the suffering that we have, the difficulties, are there as opportunities for us to manifest those virtues and to and to test our faith and to strengthen our virtues and, and, and give of ourselves and uh, live a life of charity and take up our cross and follow Jesus, and they give us opportunity to do that. Certainly nothing new about suffering, am I right? No, no, been been around for a long time. Uh, has there ever been a time when there wasn't suffering? It, it seems like we always hearken back to the good old days, the good old days. Well, you know, if I look back on my life when I was a little boy, there was a lot of suffering going on that I would just happen to be oblivious to. That's right. So, 
Got to keep these things in uh, into perspective. Thanks for your calls. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Do you have a question for Dr. David Anders? We would love to talk with you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Outside of North America, you'll want to dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, uh, if you're watching us on TV, hey, shoot us an email. The address for that, CTC at EWTN.com, CTC at EWTN.com. In a moment, we're going to uh, Tim in Fort Knox, Kentucky. couple lines open for you, 833-288-EWTN. Call to communion here with Dr. David Anders on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for David, 833-288-3986. little shout out now to another member of the EWTN radio family. That would be KHFR 103.5 FM. That's in Fairfield, Iowa, celebrating nine years with us this week. Congratulations to Mary LaFrancis and the great folks there at KHFR from all your friends here at EWTN. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Tim in Fort Knox, Kentucky, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Tim. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, on a previous show had a caller who basically was talking about theologians and people and Catholic apologists and the information that they are able to glean from different sources and versus, and the term that he used was uh, people who are the faithful who are ignorant and superstitious because they merely believe what they're taught. And I think at the end of the call, Dr. Anders said, well, your your grandmother was a pure and faithful, and she had the most beautiful faith, but she was also could have been a little superstitious. And I was wondering if he could talk to that, because while many of us have a joyful, full faith life without having to dive deep into the you know, the depths of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas or, you know, Ignatius Loyola, whatever, whoever your your favorite doctor of the church is, you don't have to know everything that everyone said to have a deep and rich faith. And I was wondering if Dr. Anders could explain, you know, the difference between... Yeah, absolutely. Sure, sure. Thank you. I really deeply appreciate this question. So, so there's a there's a big difference between um, ignorance on the one hand and superstition on the other, right? So a person could be ignorant of the teaching of the church, and and have a very rational faith, right? Um, a superstition is a sin. It's a violation of the first commandment. The Catechism defines it as the deviation of religious feeling, and of the practice this feeling imposes, right? And it gives us as an example. Um, uh, belief, for example, that the efficacy of the of prayers 
uh, or even of the sacraments depends merely upon their external performance apart from the interior dispositions that they demand. To do so, says the Catechism, is to fall into superstition. So, you know, uh, Tom often likes to give the example of the gang member who puts on the scapular before he goes to war. Fifteen scapulars. Right, fifteen scapulars yeah. in the belief that the scapular will miraculously protect him, you know, while he's out maiming and killing and mm-hmm. carrying on with mayhem. That That's a very superstitious act. Um, but uh, but a person could not have that kind of faith, not ha- not engage in superstitious practices, and still not have a, a, you know, a sublime, articulate, educated, theological understanding of the faith. Um, and, uh, and you certainly don't have to know theology to avoid the vice of superstition. Um, you know, Mother Teresa was a person who had little patience with theologians, but the heart of her spirituality was love for the poor. You know, it wasn't the mechanical repetition of prayers and rituals in the belief that they would somehow protect her from harm. It was the prayers and rituals for the purpose of conforming her life to the likeness and image of Jesus in her care of the poor. So profound spirituality, neither superstitious nor particularly theologically informed. Yeah, there you go. Tim, thanks so much for your call from Fort Knox. I don't think they're giving away free samples in Fort Knox this week, are they? I don't know. I don't think so. That would have been nice. Anyway, Tim, thanks so much for your call. It's a call to communion here on EWTN. We're going now to Michael, a first-time caller from San Diego, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Michael. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, My question comes around, I guess, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, Is it is it do Catholics believe, I mean, I understand Jesus was born, it was a virgin birth, that's been prophesied, and I understand that. Um, but is it, are we to believe, or are you to believe, if you guys believe, because I hear the term a lot, that Mary never conceived of another child after Jesus was born? That is absolutely um, correct. She was one and done, one and done. She had Jesus, and she had no other children, and she never had conjugal relations with St. Joseph. Yep, that's a dogma of the faith. Did that answer it for you, Michael? Well, you know, it, it, it does. I know Joseph died after, sometime during Jesus' childhood, but um, where do you get that from? Like, how is that? Uh, what's the, where's the proof behind that? Yeah, thanks. So, so first of all, just to dispense with an objection that one often gets, and that's the fact that the Scripture mentions the brothers and sisters of Jesus, if you trace out who those people are, and you have to look at parallel passages lined up um, in, uh, in John chapter 19 and Matthew 27, Matthew 13, uh, you, you learn that those brothers and sisters are, in fact, the sons of Mary, the wife of Clopas. So they're Jesus's cousins. They're not his biological siblings. So just push that objection out of the way for the time being. Um, but there are basically a couple of lines of reasoning that the Church uses to come to this. And, and ultimately, the, the our certainty of it is that this has been revealed by God through sacred tradition. So it's implied in sacred scripture, but it's definitively taught in sacred tradition. And you, will, you, you won't find any other position in antiquity, right? When you, when you look at the writings of all the fathers about Mary, um, they all conclude that she was perpetually virgin. So uh, someone like Francis Turretin, who was a deeply anti-Catholic 17th century uh, Protestant theologian, uh, successor to Theodore Beza in Geneva, um, uh, even somebody like that continued to believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary because— uh, he said, I can't bring myself to, to dispute a doctrine 
that has such universal approbation throughout all of Christian antiquity. So it was something that was handed down from apostolic times mm-hmm. by oral tradition and affirmed by all the fathers. So that's that's ultimately how we know. But in terms of the rationale for it, again, when the angel Gabriel approached Mary at the Annunciation and said, you're going to have a child. Now, she was betrothed to be married to Joseph at that time. Mm-hmm. And she was old enough to know where babies came from. And so if somebody shows up and says, you're going to have a baby and you're engaged to be married, the logical inference is this is going to be Joseph's child. And yet she says, how's this going to be? And the fathers read into that uh, an antecedent vow of perpetual virginity. Now, there's a rationale for this, right? And that is that Mary is uh, the second Eve. And that is the that is the earliest patristic doctrine about Mary. And we see that evoked in Scripture. So, the uh, uh, in in Genesis three, when uh, the prophecy comes that the Lord is going to put uh, enmity between the seed of the woman uh, and the serpent, and uh, who is that seed of the woman? Right, of course, that's Jesus. And then we see in uh, Revelation chapter twelve, there is this woman who is. Uh, clothed with the sun, moon, and stars, uh, with the earth under her feet, who is gives birth to the child who will rule the nations with the rod of iron, and she's described as the mother of all those who believe in Jesus. So there's both ecclesiological and mariological references there that seem to harken back to that prophecy in Genesis, thir- in Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, in, in uh, the Gospel of John, <clears throat> Jesus addresses his mother as woman and not just as Mary or mom or something like that. So the that that uh, that primordial woman who is in view in Genesis 13 is the kind of counterpart to Eve, who who gave into temptation and sinned. But then there's going to be the seed of a woman who will undo what was done in the garden. Led all the fathers to the conclusion that even as Christ is the second Adam, so Mary is the second Eve, and so so that that places her in a really significant position in terms of salvation history. She's the mother of all those who believe in Jesus, but. What is the nature of her parturition? It's certainly not biological generation. Eve was the mother of the living in the natural manner. Mary is the mother of those who are reborn spiritually in Christ. Hmm. And uh, and so she's a kind of icon of what Christian discipleship is all about. Uh, Jesus tells us, Matthew 19, St. Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 7, that the most perfect form of consecration to God is perpetual virginity. The one who has this gift, you know, that's go go with that. If you have mm-hmm. that gift, go with that. Maybe mm-hmm. not all have it, but some do. That's the most perfect form of consecration. And even as Christ was celibate, because he was totally consecrated to the will of God, it's fitting, it's fitting that the mother of our Redeemer, the mother of the Church, the second Eve, who is our mother in a spiritual rather than a carnal sense, would also figure that more perfect consecration of perpetual virginity. But she's also biologically a mother, and so that puts her in a unique position of being a model of holiness, both for biological mothers and for religious who are brides of Christ and give their virginity to him. Unique indeed. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate hearing from you in San Diego. It's called Communion here on EWTN. We can maybe slip in eh, maybe two or three more phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. Here's a brand new book now available from EWTN Publishing, New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God. That is by Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. It's the book you need to challenge atheists and agnostics to defend their ideologies logically and rationally and 
to fortify your own beliefs. You'll find empirical evidence for theism in a way that you can easily understand. It explains how atheism twists reality to justify its view by uh, selective skepticism. All right. Check it out. It's a great new book, New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God by Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. All right, let's go to Terre Haute now and talk with Simon, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Simon, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, gentlemen. Can you hear me? Yes, go right ahead. Perfect. Well, I'd just like to say at the outset that the last time I called in was uh, in 2020. At that time, I was going through RCIA. Um, I'm, of course, now fully Catholic. Since that time, I've been married in the Church, and um, I've had a daughter, and she's been baptized. And Dr. Anders was a big part of my uh, moving towards the Catholic faith in my early 20s, so I just wow. wanted to throw that out there. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, so I have a question, a kind of a detailed question about the filioque. Um, I'm going to try to formulate the question in brief, but um, there's there's a lot of points here that um, I'm I'm having some consternation over. So um, the uh, the catechism is promulgated was promulgated by uh, Saint Pope John Paul II. So I'm I'm going to take the statements in the catechism as essentially magisterial statements of, of the Pope, if that's the proper thing, the proper way to take it. Would I be correct in sort of making that assumption? No. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so the, the Catechism affirms that the Father is the source and origin of the whole divinity, which the Eastern Orthodox would affirm as well. And, uh, but, of course, it also claims, and not just the Catechism, but it, the Catechism sort of elucidates for us that um, the, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son as from one principle. So I guess that, um, that comes from uh, the Council of Florence uh, and through one's vibration. Um, but it's still, but even given that um, we're maintaining that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son as one principle, it still maintains, the Catechism still maintains that um, the Father is the first origin of the Spirit. Um, now, the Orthodox would maintain that uh, the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, but this is a sort of a distinct claim in that they would say, I suppose, to make an analogy, that the, the Father is the is the sole generative principle of the Spirit, but the, the Spirit sort of passes through the Son as, like, water might pass through a gate, and the water, you know, and then it is poured out in, into the world in time and space. Um, whereas we, as Catholics, are maintaining that, no, it, it's not just through the Son as water through a gate, but the Son is a co-generative principle. And um, so the Catechism is claiming that these, that view of the Father as, let's say, the principle without principle, I believe the, the, the Greek word is itia, the Catechism is claiming that that view, the Father's first principle, or prin- and principle without principle, is also reconcilable with this idea that the Son is a co-generative principle of the Spirit. I was wondering if you could <laughs> give me any in- insight into how that's compatible. No, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Um, the short answer is not today. <laughs> 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 you know, I, uh, I have to give that one some thought. Um, but uh, but what I will say this, there is a dispute in the ecumenical dialogue on this issue um, as to how substantive uh, the difference between these two views is, right? And I, and I will grant to you that, that, that terminologically they're, they're distinct views, uh-huh. okay? Um, but, uh, you know, people like Eve Congar and Aidan Nichols, 
uh, definitely believe that uh, that the Eastern view and the Latin view are are reconcilable, right? That are not an insuperable barrier to union. Um, there are others like Vladimir Lossky, for example, the Russian theologian who thinks, no, this is a line in the sand. This is absolutely fundamental to the doctrine of God, um, and uh, Latins are heretics in consequence, right? Um, uh, that position is out there. Uh, I, I, a lot of ink has been spilled on this over the centuries. I'm not going to resolve the conflict today, obviously. Um, you know, there's an exegetical point uh, as well, and that is that Jesus says explicitly in John 15 that he's going to send the Spirit. Now, I recognize Orthodox have their take on that language, uh, but in terms of the um, of the suitability of, uh, you know, talking about the Spirit proceeding from the Son, since the Son specifically speaks of the Spirit's mission from him, that would seem to be legitimate terminology, and I will leave it to the dogmaticians, and I'm not going to settle it today on how to how to splice the fine metaphysical hairs of that distinction. Uh, Simon, thanks so much for your call and for your kind words about the show. We really appreciate that. Uh, glad that you are now a Catholic. Let's go now to John, a first-time caller in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. John, what's on your mind today, sir? I was wondering if it's possible to switch from being a Latin Rite Catholic to an Eastern Rite Catholic, such as Ukrainian Catholic. Yes, it is possible. It is possible. How would he do Here, that? Here's how you do it. So start going to divine liturgy at the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Start going there. Join the community. Become a part of it. Live their life. Live their spirituality. Take on their identity. Um, uh, become one of them in heart and soul. And then, and then, you know, when you've done that for a few years and the pastor knows that you're serious about this, um, then... Uh, uh, then he'll arrange for you to take the proper canonical steps, right? But you shouldn't you shouldn't do this from a distance because, hey, you know, I think the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom is pretty neat, right? Because there's there's more involved mm-hmm. in in changing right. I mean, you really have to say, you know, these are my people, kind yeah. of marinated yeah. in the for a little exactly. while. Exactly, you okay. know, you're you're taking on a whole identity. Mm-hmm. You're taking on you know a, a new code of canon law. You're taking on uh, new theological traditions, new spirituality, and ultimately, you, you want to be joined to you know to a parish community, to a parochial community that that shares that identity that you've come to inhabit and make your own, um, and uh, and that you know the that's how the Eastern churches like to do it. They they like you to come come live with us, come be one of us, and then you know if you. If you're one of us and we're one of you, then we'll make this thing happen. Sounds good. John, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate hearing from you in Nebraska. Uh, scoot over to Iowa right now and talk with Philip, a first-time caller, also listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Hello, Philip. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, in the Apostles' Creed, it says uh, that Christ was crucified. He uh, died on the cross. He was buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. However, I'm finding some uh, some conflict with the belief that people that came before Christ, like Moses, Abraham, Lazarus, even in the time of Jesus, they when they died, they went into a state of limbo. And so I just wanted to hear what your guys' thoughts and answers were yeah. in that conflict sure. between the differences between Jesus descending into hell versus limbo. Yeah, no no, no conflict at all. The Catholic position here is that the hell into which Jesus descended is not the hell of the damned. 
It's not the hell of the damned. Two it, different is, things. it is, in fact, the limbus of the fathers. So there's no conflict at all. There's some ambiguity in the language because hell is an ambiguous term. It can refer, just like heaven can refer to multiple realities. It can refer to the vision of God. Uh, it can also refer to, you know, where the Hubble telescope is. Right? Yeah. They're not the same thing. Right? Yeah. There's different senses of the word hell as well. Appreciate your call, Philip. Thanks for uh, checking in from uh, Spirit Catholic Radio, one of our great longtime partners. Here's a question now from Doug watching us on YouTube today. Doug says, is it right or wrong for a Protestant who passed away had a verse from a Catholic Bible put on his grave headstone? Oh, from my point of view, it's very right. I mean, of course, let him let him put the word of God on his headstone. Now, his some of his Protestant relatives might not like that. May not. But um, but it's in the Bible, and God put it there. So let's stick it on headstones. Sounds good to me. Uh, appreciate that, Doug. Thanks for watching us today on YouTube. Here's a question now from Greg in New Haven County, Connecticut. Um, he says to completely ignore the fact that debate and controversy exists over the Vatican ruling on same-sex blessings when answering questions on the subject is both disingenuous and insulting. He says, we deserve better. All right, well, if he's suggesting that, that, that I am not acknowledging that there's conflict, I'm not, have I ever denied that there was conflict over nope. that, Tom? No, I don't think I've no, ever denied no. that there was conflict. I've, pre- I've presented a point of view, Yes. right? That's my prerogative. Is to present a point of view, but yeah. you know, I've, I often don't. I often say, Tom, on this show, look, I'm I'm just a guy with a cup of tea and a theology degree and a microphone. <laughs> like you're you're allowed to disagree with me. It's my point of view sure. right, on stuff. You know, yeah. That one of the great things about being Catholic is two different Catholics can disagree without having to break into two different denominations. Love that. And what what unites us are the dogmas and the sacraments. Yes, those are the non-negotiables. But but how we interpret those sometimes, how we live them, um, and then of course the the huge area of, uh, of of Catholic teaching and practice is not explicitly dogmatic. There's a, an enormous range of possibilities. Okay, appreciate uh, Greg in Connecticut. Thanks for your email today. Here's one now from Aaron, Doctor Anders. I'm trying to study philosophy in order to eventually study theology. I'm a complete beginner, and due to my job as a, tar- a truck driver, I cannot take formal courses. I've decided to study by reading books on my own. I was wondering if you could recommend some introductory books to help me understand terms and concepts often found in Catholic theology. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I think you should read the book Aquinas by Edward Faser, F-E-S-E-R. That It's an introduction to Thomas's philosophy specifically, and really grounds you in the Aristotelian terminology that he uses and helps you understand what he means by those terms. Now, you mentioned that you're a truck driver and, and you're, you know, you're doing some reading on your own. You have an opportunity as a truck driver when you spend so many hours alone behind the wheel to deeply educate yourself. And, and there's some resources I want to strongly recommend to you. One of them, if you're interested in philosophy and Catholic philosophy in particular, is the, the podcast of the Thomistic Institute. Good stuff. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lectures all about all different kinds of topics in Catholic philosophy. Uh, you'll get a magnificent education listening to that podcast. The Institute for Catholic Culture is another one that you might want to explore. Um, and, of course, uh, uh, EWTN has, uh, has a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. You know, in our archives, uh, Dr. Garrity used to get on the air and talk all about Thomistic philosophy. You remember he, he oh, passed sure. on a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. but. But uh, but you'll find you'll find great resources on the EWTN 
um, video and, and audio archives as well. And, you know, we hear from truck drivers all the time who appreciate the fact that we're on satellite radio because then they can listen coast to coast. That's exactly right. So, And we've, a- we've seen guys call the show as truck drivers who were anti-Catholic fundamentalists Yeah, and watch them go from anti-Catholic fundamentalists to confirmed communing Catholic apologists. Yeah. We've seen that happen multiple times. Beautiful thing. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for your question. Here's one now from Justin in Cleveland. He says, I might try to sell some of my Blu-rays, DVDs, and other media. The problem is that some of them have violence, nudity, and sexually immoral scenes. Also, some of my old heavy metal records, there you go, are pretty much demonic. I collected all this stuff before I converted. Would it be sinful to sell these resulting in others being exposed to their immorality. Thanks for your great show, Justin in Cleveland. Yeah, so, you know, I, I don't see any reason. If you have something that you believe to be intrinsically more immoral in your possession yeah. and that would be harmful to the soul, why would you put that in the hands of some innocent soul? We have a nice big uh, trash can in our kitchen. Yeah. That's where it goes. Yeah. And I've done that. Yeah. I've I've done that actually fairly recently. Somebody gave me a DVD or I picked it up at a thrift store or something like that. And Adriana, a guy, will get like five minutes into it. It's like, this is not what we thought it was. Well, I'm not going to take it back to a thrift store. It, it's going in the trash. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know why you would want to pass that on to somebody else if you think it's bad. Here's one last one from uh, Zach. Dr. Andrews, is it best for people to deny ignore and stuff their feelings um that's you know it's interesting you should ask me as someone who has a long history of denying and stuffing and ignoring my feelings you know typically it doesn't work out very well for me it doesn't work out well for me i mean this seems to me more of a dr pop check or a dr ray kind of question than than me but uh you know just as somebody who's 53 years old and is married and has five kids and a couple of grandkids and you know has had a lot of life experiences um you know the danger to me personally is that I, I don't want to become passive aggressive. You yeah. know, if I if I if I bottle up a lot of feelings and emotions, and I may it may come out in other ways. Now that doesn't give me carte blanche to just go off on people. Sure. What I want to do is actually come to a kind of rational moderation of my passions, so that my emotions don't run away with me. Makes sense. Zach, thanks so much uh, for your call. Glad we could get it in today. Hey, Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN on the radio side at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com slash radio and then look for the words Podcast Central, a wealth of wonderful uh, podcasts, including the Thomistic Institute that you mentioned earlier. How about that? So uh, go there, check it out. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Hey, thanks for joining us. We see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.